All right, thank you, Jay. Good morning. It won't be as long as last week, I promise. How many of you are interested in genealogies? Anybody ever done an Ancestry.com? We have a few people that do. We had a neighbor recently that decided to run an Ancestry.com. If you don't know what that is, they send you, you pay, obviously. They send you a little test kit. You lick and get some DNA on a certain, thank you, David, on a certain piece. They take it back and they test it. And anybody else who's ever done that, they connect your DNA with their DNA. And they then share your family tree. And you have all kinds of avenues and branches and so forth. One of our missionaries, Paul Horitz, his wife, Kathy, is a genealogical fanatic. She could tell you, and she loves to do it. If you ever want to know your genealogy, you get in touch with Kathy. She has resources. She can tell you all the way back to the beginning of your family. She's just infatuated with that. Well, sometimes people don't understand what the significance of a genealogy is until you get into the line to inherit something. Now, if anyone has ever died in your family and you ever hear of a genealogy through a bloodline, if you ever hear that terminology and you ever sit in an attorney's office, you will then become very, very interested in your genealogy. Because when it passes down through the bloodline, you have to be connected. And guess what? If by some reason and some chance you are not connected to the bloodline, you are not an heir. And you are dismissed and sent away. Now Karen and I, last year or so, became interested in a story. It was actually a movie called Downton Abbey. Has anybody seen the series? It came out years ago. We bought the set. When you begin watching it, I just warn you, you'll become completely captivated. But one of the things that is the, one of the major motifs in Downton Abbey is that Lord Grantham has nobody to give his heirship to. His da- all he has is daughters. They have no children, no, no sons. And in English tradition, the inheritance cannot be passed to a daughter. She can't even be mentioned. So Matthew obviously comes on the scene, and I won't ruin it for you because I really enjoyed Matthew until something happened to him. But the whole plot plays out, and the big question is, you know, I'm going to talk about Matthew, but not the one I just mentioned. The whole plot plays out, and can Mary end up getting her family's inheritance? Can she obtain Downton Abbey? Well, this is kind of what happens in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. So if you'll turn there, we're going to look at the importance of a family tree. How important is that, by the way, to understand the genealogy of the family tree? Well, Matthew in the New Testament Gospels is a bridge. Listen closely because you have to teach a little bit, right? If you were to read the last Old Testament book, which is what? Don't say, don't say Malachi. The last Old Testament book in the Hebrew Bible is Chronicles. The ordering is different, by the way, in the English tradition, thanks to the Roman Catholics. But nevertheless, in the book of Chronicles, you have a listing of genealogies. And it finishes at the end of the Hebrew canon with a listing of the current matchup of the Messiah. If you turn to Mark's gospel, by the way, 
You will not find a genealogy in Mark's gospel. As a matter of fact, he just skips completely over it. He goes right straight into the ministry of Jesus. Not interested with the genealogy? Why? Because he's not talking to Jews. He's talking to who? Gentiles, Romans. They're not interested in a genealogy, so he skips right through it and says, this is the ministry of Jesus. You come to the gospel of Luke. Who's Luke talking to? He's probably talking to Greeks. He doesn't start off with a genealogy. Why doesn't he start off? Because they're not a bit interested in it. He's going to get right to the point of the story about how Jesus came and then how that impacted man. When you turn to the Gospel of John, which was written in 90 A.D. or later, I mean, a long time has passed now. How does John start off his Gospel? I hope you remember because I just preached on it two weeks ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A universal appeal to mankind. Only the Gospel of Matthew lays out the genealogy that traces Jesus Christ from the very inception back to his rightful place on David's throne as a son of Abraham. If you're not interested in genealogy, it's not important. But if you are, very important. When you're talking to a Jew and you're saying, this is Jesus, the Messiah, the first thing a Jew would say is, prove it. Prove it. If I'm going to be in part of this airship, prove that that's a fact. And that's exactly what Matthew does. Now, by the way, while we're in the teaching mode here, can I just share just a little insight with you? When, when I went to seminary, I went to a conservative seminary, and then I went to a seminary that didn't really know what it was, and then finally ended up in a really conservative seminary. So what, what happens when you study the Gospels is, which one is first? They call this gospel priority which gospel is first and i'll just help you as a church family here okay if you ever pick up a commentary or you ever listen to someone and someone argues that mark's gospel is first then automatically you'll know that they have a higher critical view okay took me years to learn that but if mark gets priority they have a high critical view which came from higher criticism But if they come out and say, no, Matthew is first, then you'll understand that they have the orthodox position. Now, we could argue here, and I could put you all to sleep as to why Matthew is first. But let me say this. Matthew is first because he is the only gospel that forms a bridge from the Old Testament into the New. And as a matter of fact, if you did not have Matthew's gospel you would not understand the the transition from the kingdom offered to Israel to the church that is now calling out a people from the Gentiles for his name. You would have no clue about that. And so Matthew is a key. He is the bridge that gets from the book of Chronicles into the book of Acts and the New Testament and then into the epistles. So why is this genealogy important? Well, I want to share just a couple things here about why it's important in salvation history. And one of the interesting things is is that this genealogy advances by the means of the most difficult people and the most difficult circumstances ever. And when you read through this, sometimes you miss it. Now, I know I've preached this before at Trinity. I, I keep up with what I preach. The last time I preached this passage was in 2011 when I came. I haven't touched on it since. 
So we've got a lot of people that came in, and I'm going to give a different angle to it. I'm not preaching the same sermon. I went back and totally redid it. You won't see one point in there that I said before. But I want this to be very, very practical to your life, but I want you to see something about God's Word this morning that should leave you fascinated and leave you with hope this morning and rejoicing. So the first thing we want to see is the royal heritage of Jesus. Look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Notice how he starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Every Jew is going to go, wow, I want to see my family here. Now notice how he starts it, though. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Hmm. Who came first, David or Abraham? Abraham. Why would he say David first? Now, I remember what it was like when Jay asked, you know, what is a minor key? Now, I like to have fun, Jay. We don't like to answer publicly, do we? Because sometimes we're afraid we may be wrong. Don't be afraid of that. You answer in your own mind. Why does he say son of David before he says son of Abraham? Because people would always tie to Abraham first before they would David. And the answer is, he's going right for the Davidic throne. Who has the right to sit on David's throne? This is Jesus Christ, the one who was promised to come through the seed of Abraham. But we're focusing here on David's throne. He is the rightful heir to that throne. Now notice what he says. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Uh-oh. Y'all ready for this? By Tamar. Oh, now, wait a minute. Now, that should catch every Jewish person's attention. You know why? Because Jews do not mention women in genealogies. Every Jew would have went, hold it right there. You're, you're mentioning a woman. And not just a woman, you are mentioning Tamar. Now, by the way, do you all read through your Bible every year? Do you know who Tamar is? I'm going to talk about her in just a minute. I'll tell you about Tamar. She's an interesting character. Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by, uh-oh, Rahab. Who's Rahab? She was the, the harlot. What's a harlot? A prostitute. Are you all hearing me? This would have been abhorrent to a Jew. How dare you link this godly lineage of the Messiah? You have said Tamar's name, who they would say took advantage of Judah, which we know better. And then they would say Rahab the harlot... You're linking her name with Jesus? Oh my gracious, alive in the morning. What are you doing? And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Oh my, well you say, well Ruth was a good lady. No, wait a minute. Ruth was not a Jew. What was she? A Moabite. What is so significant about a Moabite? Where did the Moabites come from? I'll tell you. And what did God say about Moabites? And their entrance into Israel. Hold on to that thought. I'll tell you in just a minute. 
by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. There's Ruth. There's, thank God for Ruth. Who was Ruth? Was she a Jew? Say no. What was she? Okay, we'll look there in just a minute. Ruth, by Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. You ready for this? 4,000 years of history. Right there. Boom, 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 boom. And if you look at this, it's laid out by David's name. You know, David has so many names, uh, letters in his name in Hebrew, and then the 14 generations are laid out here by Matthew in a masterful way, and he lays it out and gets right down to David being the father of Solomon, and now we're going to get to the next part by the who? The wife of... Who's he talking about? What's her name? Bathsheba. Who is she? Was she the wonderful girl that was brought up in homeschool by her parents and uh, never was able to kiss until she was 50 years old? And who was Bathsheba? She was the, the lady who was married to Uriah, the military guy, who when David made eyes at her, she flirted back with him, and the next thing you know, what happened? She ended up in an adulterous affair with David, the king of Israel. Four women of questionable character listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about the royal heritage of Jesus, no question he was tied back to David. 2 Samuel 7, we won't take time to turn there. But God promised David a son who would sit on his throne and rule forever. And he was also tied back to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, where God told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to call you out of Ur of the Chaldees as a moon worshiper, and I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make you a name and a seed and a blessing for all nations, and by you, through you that is, through your seed, all nations shall be blessed. Now Paul makes that very clear, that not only is he talking about the Jewish nation who would bless people, but specifically the seed that would come from Abraham, namely Jesus Christ himself, would be the blessings of all people. So he links him here tied both ways. Now let me say this before I forget. Luke's genealogy traces the, which side, maternal or paternal? You know, all of us have a genealogy. We have our mother's side and we have our father's side. Luke traces the side of... Mary, Matthew traces the side of Joseph. This is the paternal side. Even though Joseph wasn't the earthly father, he was linked up. So Jesus has an avenue here back to the throne of David through both Mary and Joseph. Double connection back to the family tree. And you're telling me God didn't know what he was doing? He appeared to a virgin named Mary in a little Galilean town. She was going to be the one to carry the Messiah. And Joseph, don't you be afraid to take Mary. You don't think God had a plan with these two, tying them back perfectly to the genealogy? It wasn't happenstance, folks. This was called divine sovereignty and providence, working in ordinary people in extraordinary ways. And here he ties this back. So you go on down the list and you find out that David... David was the direct uh, 
father of Jesus down through the lineage and traces all the way back to Abraham. So there's a perfect royal heritage of Jesus. But now think about this. Think about the redeeming hand of God in this process. Now, we all know the Word was in the beginning with God. The Word had everything to do with all of this genealogy. But think about the descendants that he decided to come through the lineage of. Tamar, the Canaanite. Now, who were the Canaanites? Well, if you go back in the Old Testament and read, the Canaanites were actually the people who inhabited the nation of Israel. We call it the land of Canaan, meaning the Canaanites were there, and God allowed the Canaanites to go in and build Walmart and Kroger and all the motels and the houses, plant the vineyards. They were very sophisticated people, but they were pagan worshipers. And this is what God decided to do. He let the Canaanites go in the land. They built everything for the nation of Israel. And then God was going to allow Israel to go in and piecemeal by piecemeal overtake the land of Israel, and everything would be done for them. This is why God told them in Deuteronomy, when you go in and you go to Walmart and buy all your groceries and you sit back and watch... You know, your TV on Sunday, don't forget about me. Don't forget about me. You'd be thankful for me when your bank accounts are full and your cars aren't breaking down and you don't have any worries in your life. Don't you forget about me and stop coming to church. Stop tithing. Stop giving to the Lord. Stop being concerned about witnessing to people. Don't you forget about me because when you do, I'll cut the bottom out of your bag. I'll send pestilence to your life. I'll send the coronavirus. I'll send the IRS and I'll put an administration in that'll make sure you can't make any money. It's a little joke, folks. But that is what he told them. Don't forget about me. There was a connection right there in the land of Canaan. So Israel went in. They tried to overtake the Canaanites. God told them to kill them. Kill all the Canaanites. They are under my wrath, my ban. What did Israel do? They let some of them escape. Isn't this grace? One of them, her name was Tamar. She was a Canaanite. Tamar ended up marrying one of Judah's sons. You can go back in Genesis 38 and read this sordid story. She married one son and guess what? She died. Well, Judah gave her another son. And guess what? He was an evil man. We won't talk about what he did. His name was Onan, and if you can't get the idea here, Onan did not propagate his family and made God very mad, and God struck him and he died. Judah's lost two sons now. Now what happens? She wants a third. She says, give me the good boy. That's the one I want. And Judah said, girl, you're not getting another one from my family. So he sent Tamar away. Well, she caught Judah out on a business trip and she went out and dressed up in her nice red dress and she found Judah walking down the street and covered her face and she said, uh, you looking for some fun? And Judah said, well, I don't see any security cameras. Sure. She said, okay. She said, the payment is your staff. He got a stick. Here you go, honey. You can have it. He went in to his daughter-in-law. You ready for this? She became pregnant. 
And then when she was found to be pregnant, Judah found out that his daughter-in-law was pregnant, and he said, bring her out here, and we're going to stone her right in the middle of the street. And boy, they drugged Tamar out in the middle of the street, and Judah was standing there. This unfaithful woman, this is why I don't give her my third son. We're going to kill her. And she says, before you do, the one to whom this child belongs is the owner of this staff. And she pulled out his driver's license. And Judah went, She is more righteous than I. Now are you listening to me? The child that she bore is in the genealogy of our Savior. Now don't you say ever anything about illegitimate children. There are no illegitimate children. There's a bunch of illegitimate males and females. But there are no illegitimate children. And God used this child down through the lineage to bring the Savior into the world. He also descended from Rahab, the Canaanite. Now think about Rahab. She was the one who Joshua decided to go to, him and Caleb. She hid the two spies She was a prostitute. We don't know a whole lot about Rahab other than the fact that she believed in the God of Israel. And what did God end up doing? He ended up using a Canaanite and Jesus descended through Rahab. Now I want to hurry and get to the third, which is Ruth the Moabite. You know the story of Boaz and Ruth. You get through the the conquest of Joshua. The nation of Israel never, ever occupied the entire land. They never drove everybody out. And then when you get into the book of Judges, what happens? The nation wants a king like the other people. They fail to obey God. They go into these cycles of rebellion and so forth and come back around to repentance and it just goes round and round and God raises up people, crazy people, like Samson, you know, Shimshon, Sunshine, that's what he means. Sunshine, who supposedly could see everything, ended up leaving the world as what? Blind as a bat. Couldn't see, or play on his name. Gideon, by the way, Gideon was the most scared thing in the world. Always doubting God, couldn't believe God. Every time God told him to do something, give me a sign, give me a sign. Can't believe you, God. Can't, can't believe. He picked the, the toughest one out of the whole bunch was Ehud. You know, the left-handed man that went up and stabbed King Eglon, Eglon, the fatted calf, buried the knife up in his belly. But out of all that chaos in Judges, you constantly read the phrase, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And when you get to the end of the book of Judges, you think there's not one righteous person in the whole land of Israel until you get to the book of Ruth. And then you read about this sweet, Moabite woman who married this Jewish man and he died. And she loved her mother-in-law so much that she wanted to stay with her. And so she hung to the coattails of bitter old Naomi. That's what the story of Ruth's about. It's really not about Ruth. It's about Naomi, by the way. Her name means bitter. And Ruth was the only blessing in her life. And she kept trying to push Ruth. Get away, girl. Get away. No, I'm not going away. Get away. She stayed with her. She took her back. And she ends up marrying Boaz. 
she ends up into the genealogy of Jesus. But here's the problem. She was a Moabite. What did God say about the Moabites? Well, look back in Deuteronomy chapter 23. I didn't put it on the screen. But I want you to hear this, even if you don't turn to it. Listen to what God told the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 23 about the Moabites. I won't read verse 1, but I'll let you read that. Verse 3, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Mesopotamia to curse you. These Moabites hated you, and because of that, they're not allowed in your assembly all the way down through ten generations. Well, guess what happened? This sweet lady named Ruth was a Moabite, and God ended up using her in the genealogy of Jesus our Savior. Now, by the way, folks, this is called grace. Do you know where the Moabites came from? Maybe we should be in PG-13 here. You can read the story back in the book of Genesis, but I'll give you a clue. When Abraham and Lot, Lot was Abraham's nephew, left Ur to go over into Canaan, the land of Israel, Lot went to the south, Abraham went up, and Lot went down into Sodom and Gomorrah, and God went down to judge that place, right? And when Lot went to leave, his wife turned into a pillar of Morton table salt. Actually, it was ash, by the way. She was judged. She turned into a pillar of salt. And here was Lot coming out of the land, and his two daughters had lived in Sodom and Gomorrah so long, they liked to party. They were concerned about their genealogy, by the way. We're not too concerned about that today. They were very concerned about childlessness. They had their father intoxicated and both of the daughters by incestuous relationships. I know this is sordid, but you need to hear this. Both by incestuous relationships had children and this is where the Moabites and the Edomites came from. Now the Moabites and the Edomites who came from this sordid family ended up having children who had children and had children. And all of a sudden, a little girl came out of there whose name was Ruth. Now, I'm sure people who stood up and looked down in that town said, Look at those Moabites. Look how they started. Wretched wrath. God said they'll never be able to enter in. And guess what happened? God ended up using a Moabite in the genealogy of Jesus. Fascinating. Now we get to the final one, and that is the wife of Uriah. Matthew doesn't mention her name, but it's very interesting that he says, the wife of Uriah. Now Bathsheba, as you know the story, and by the way, we could lay this case out. The fault lays with David, but there have been a lot of scholars recently who have talked about Bathsheba and the way it's portrayed, and she is through Scripture. You know, she was a partaker in this as well. She wasn't just uh, held against her will and tied up and strapped down. You know, she knew David was flirting with her. She could have told him no. 
You say, well, she couldn't have done it against the power of God. Let's not get into that right here. We'll lay out the case someday if you want to. But she's an equal partaker. But here's what I'm trying to say. Even though she was unfaithful, God ended up using this woman's offspring, as you well know, in the genealogy of our Lord. Now, hold on for just a minute. Why would Matthew take a chance through the inspiration of the Spirit, by the way, of turning off every Jewish reader by mentioning these women in the genealogy. Why would he do that? I have a suggestion. I like to think about stuff like this. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus goes, when the Jews turn him down, where does he go to? Go ahead and say it. He turned to the Gentiles. Right from the very get-go of Matthew's Gospel, he's letting them know that Jesus was not just the Jesus for the Jews. That all the way back from history, 4,000 years of history, God has used and saved and used the very people that the religious, called, whatever you want to call, have always overlooked. Though they may have overlooked them, God never did. Because that's the kind of God He is. So what is so special about these four women that they are mentioned in the line of Christ? Well, I think this is the reason it's so special is because it shows God's reaching hand down into the hearts and the lives of people, even non-Jews. So the inclusion of Gentiles shows God's saving plan for not only Israel, but Gentiles all the way back from the earliest history. Now, what are some lessons that we learn from this about our life? We, we want to keep this practical, don't we? Number one, God always fulfills His promises to His people. He told Abraham, I'm going to give you a seed, and I'm going to bless you, and by your seed all, all peoples shall be blessed. And God did that in ways nobody would have ever imagined. How could God have used what He did to bless people? Because He's God and that's how He works. The second lesson we learn is that a godly line can come from a person with an ungodly background. Now I want you to hear me here. There may have been circumstances in your life that you could not change. You look back in your genealogy and your family tree and you might have a rough, sordid past. That doesn't determine your future. You can change that genealogy with yourself. And that is the challenge that God wants us to do. I'm going to tell you, we have an Altizer family book about that thick. It's scary to read our family history. There, there may be a few preachers, not many. Most were coal miners, moonshiners, and a rough bunch came over from Germany, landed here, and boy, they were rough, let me tell you. Rough, I could tell you stories. But God takes people in families and He turns that. And that's what He wants to do in our life. The third lesson we learn is that God forgives. And He gives the forgiven important roles, though they may be, there may be consequences for their actions. Now, Bathsheba may have chosen to do something, maybe by the leading of David. God used her 
And he blessed her. However, there are consequences for our choices. Did you know that? That's why we have to pound, pound, pound in our kids. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Live life with wisdom. Because choices have consequences. Doesn't mean God can't use you. But it may mean that you have a rough road ahead. But God will still use you. The fourth lesson that we learn, I love this one. Our past failures do not prohibit our present service for the Lord. By the way, the church has failed miserably here. You know that? We have failed. Somehow or another, we treat people who sinned and messed up like they can never be used by God. Please, please don't do that. All you have to do is read a genealogy. Read this one. You can't tell me God did not use people who had a sordid past. Now, I know there may have been consequences, but, you know, God is oftentimes a whole lot more gracious than His people are. And we have to be broken, folks. Humble and broken. And always remind ourselves, please hear me here, always remind yourself, but by the grace of God, that would be you. But by the grace of God, that would be you. Don't ever get up on your high religious horse and ride around and point at people, folks. Listen carefully to me. Because things can come into your life and your family that will break you like a shotgun. And don't ever say things cannot happen to you. They can. Be very cautious. And sometimes there are things you don't ever ask for, but they come. But past failures do not prohibit present service for the Lord. There's a fifth lesson. And that is, past failures do not exclude future praise. Honor and approval by Christ. You know, one of the things that we have to teach people and share with people is even though you mess up in life, and you, you may have made a big mistake, that does not mean that you live your life in total shame. It is possible for a person to, to completely mess up and still at the end of their life hear praise from Jesus. Did you know that? As a matter of fact, let me teach you a doctrinal truth this morning. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the one to pay for your sin, according to God's Word, when He looks at you, how does He see you? How? Well, let me tell you what Paul says. He sees us as the righteousness of Christ. In other words, when God the Father looks at us, He doesn't say, well, here's a tier one Christian. There's a tier two. And down there's a tier 20. Oh, my gracious. Nope. Nope. Please hear me now. When God the Father sees us, He sees us in one picture. We are under the righteousness of Jesus. He sees us just like His Son. Jude says that He will be able and with pleasure to present us faultless before the throne. Faultless. 
You say, well, you don't know what I've done. I have messed up. I've, I've cheated. I've stolen. I'm an adulterer. I'm a fornicator. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. Yep, I know you are. So is everybody else that you're looking around. You say, well, oh my gracious, how dare you say... Now listen to what Jesus told the religious Pharisees. He said, any man who ever looks at a woman in his heart and lust is an adulterer. Every man in here, have you ever done that? Don't you say no or I'll call you a liar. You know you have. You know what Jesus says about you? You're an adulterer in your heart. Sorry to offend you, but that's just the way it is. We all have to get off our high horses here. Don't we? We're all sinners. Ladies, you want me to plow in your corn row? Because you're all sinners too. All of you. All of us are. But here's what I'm trying to say. Even if you carry out your actions and you have sinned, that doesn't mean that your failure in life will never result in praise and honor. God says He wants to honor Himself through your life. So change. Get up out of the mud. Quit wallowing in the mud. Live your life for the glory of Jesus because one day you will receive praise and honor from God. Interesting thing about Jesus, by the way. You know, I wrote my dissertation on the judgment seat of Christ. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about that there will be some people who will lose reward and they will be saved only as by fire. That's a, that's a phrase where the works of our life are tested and when the fire's put to them, everything's burned away and the only thing that remains is them. It's there. They won't have nothing. Nothing. Their whole life will be wasted. But then Paul very quickly says, but after that, every man shall receive praise. God in His grace even after the judgment seat of Christ, will find something good to say about everyone. What a gracious God. So don't go out of here with your jaw dragging the floor thinking that you've failed life. You can still hear praise from our Savior. The sixth lesson, you say, my gracious, how many you got today? About 20? No, I'm kidding. The sixth lesson we learn from this genealogy is we can trust God to faithfully carry out His plan irregardless how hopeless things may appear in the world. You know, we look around today and say, oh my gracious, it's never been this bad. Yeah, it has. Been a whole lot worse. We got it made, folks. Been a whole lot worse. I know our country has issues. I know it has problems. I know our world has issues and has problems. But do you not realize that God is using every bit of this in His plan? He knew this was going to happen. He orchestrates this. He allows it to happen. And sometimes he throws a little gas on the fire. Because he knows exactly what he's doing. We don't have to be all frustrated and aggravated. Because when you look through a genealogy like this, God can take some of the worst times in human history and turn them for his good and his glory. You see, God's drawing a masterpiece. And even when we get in the minor key, Even when we're painting a black picture in the back and it seems like it's terrible and bleak, God always has bright colors to add to the canvas. And He wants to make sure you are one of those bright colors.
Do you know Him as your Savior? Do you rejoice in Him? Do you understand these truths that even though maybe you mess up in life, God still wants to forgive and He wants to use you? Well, that's His message to you today. No matter how bad you think you are, Jesus is still the Savior of your soul. Trust Him as your Savior today. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for Your goodness to us, even though we don't deserve it. You are so gracious, and we thank You for that. And we give You praise this morning that You put something in the written Word of God that shows us Your character and who You use even in the life of our Lord Jesus. So we're encouraged this morning to know that You take sinners, bad sinners, and by Your grace, You turn them into faithful, worthy recipients of salvation. And not only that, but You use them in Your work to bring glory to Your name. And Father, may everyone under the sound of my voice, whether in here or whether they stumble across this on the internet, understand how to have a relationship with You. To know that we are broken, we are sinners, we're separated from You. But You gave Jesus to forgive us and redeem us of our sin. And we thank You for that this morning. May we believe the Gospel and accept what He did. And for that we give You praise. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.